A reading from the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke, chapter 6, verses 35 through 42. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. The Gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, in this uh, Advent, we remember um, you are a God who intervenes. Uh, and so we ask you to intervene. Father, we ask that you will be very active right now. Speak to us. Make yourself plain. Address the, the issues underneath the questions we have. Address the issues that are actually so deep we don't even know to ask them. Do in us what needs to be done to make us see you uh, and to be brought into that transforming relationship for which we were made. So do this now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, please uh, be seated, and it's helpful if you turn back in your service sheet to that second reading. Um, Advent. We've been talking a lot about Advent because it's Advent. Um, what is Advent? It's the four weeks that lead up to Christmas. Um, do you remember what Advent means? It means the arrival. Everyone say arrival. And uh, one of the things, during Advent, you can kind of emphasize different themes because it's a window on a lot of different things. But one of the main things that it's a window in on uh, is that uh, we need God to arrive. Uh, one of the themes that you see throughout the, script, the Christian uh, scriptures is this, that we live in a world uh, that is deeply flawed. I think there's wide agreement on that. Um, however, uh, the, the Christian conviction is that the problems that we face, the problems in your life and our world, are, are, are bigger uh, than what we can solve. And therefore, we need, uh, we need the competence of another. We need a greater competence. We need God to advent, arrive, intervene. And part of the audacious claim of Christianity is that Jesus is God's arrival, uh, that Jesus is God's advent, that Jesus is God's unexpected intervention into our most catastrophic problems. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, identify one of those catastrophic problems and um, look at how the advent of Jesus Christ, the arrival of Jesus Christ, addresses this 
catastrophic problem in a deep way. What's the problem? Uh, here's the problem that we're going to focus on. It's the problem of contempt, of contemptuous judgmentalism. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, um, imagine, first of all, uh, imagine contemptuous, the problem of contempt, and imagine it outside uh, a religious context. So um, this is going to be obvious to all of us. Just imagine for a minute a Twitter feed. And imagine somebody um, tweets uh, something that um, is, uh, uh, is, is uh, thoughtful but controversial and, and intends to kind of stir the pot a little bit. And you start to uh, read the responses. You know where this is going. You start to uh, read the responses, and some of them are supportive, and, and some of them are kind of funny. And a bunch of them are, are, are critical. And, uh, and that's fine. That's part of the debate. That's part of the point. But then you notice a post uh, that, that crosses into new territory. Do you know what I mean? Crosses into new territory, and it's not just that this new post is uh, critiquing the idea that is at, in, under debate, but rather this is a post that holds contempt for the person. You know what I mean, don't you? And my guess is that when you see tweets like that and whatever other kind of post or whatever, my guess is that you, you may not be supportive, but my guess is that it's not very surprising, right? Why? Why doesn't, the, why doesn't that kind of contempt that we see quite often, why doesn't it surprise us? And I think part of the reason it doesn't surprise us is that we are in a moment where contempt is increasingly uh, becoming a normalized part of our life. And, and of course, it's not just in the social media uh, world, nor is it just in the political framework, though those are raging and obvious examples, but it it touches uh, potentially every single part of our lives in different ways. Now, why am I saying this? Here's why. I want to show you today how Jesus advents and arrives and intervenes in a way that pushes against a culture of contempt and creates in its place a culture of mercy. Take a look at the reading. Look at verse 37. These are famous words. Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Given, and it will be given to you. Now stop. Uh, that's a culture of mercy. And it is very different. It's the opposite of a culture of contempt. It goes right against the grain of a lot of what is increasingly normal in our world. And I want to argue that the advent of Jesus Christ is the only way to create that culture of mercy. Now, to flesh this out, I want to show you two things. First, we're going to uh, talk about uh, contempt and how contempt can blind us. You can hold contempt and not have a clue. But then secondly, I want to show you how the advent of Jesus uh, kills contempt and replaces it with mercy. Okay, let's get into it. First of all, think about contempt and how it can blind us. And to do that, I want you to go to the end of the reading. Look at verse 41. 
uh, Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take this speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye. Right, okay, this is the classic image of uh, hypocrisy, right? So one guy has a, a little speck of dust in his eye. It's a little irritating. Um, in other words, it's a relatively small problem. But then there's another guy that's really eager, weirdly eager to help. Uh, however, he's got a, a pole, a plank, lodged in his eye socket, and he's oblivious. Now, in the context, Jesus is talking about the problem of hypocritical judgmentalism or contemptuous judgmentalism. And my question is this, how can, we, how can you have a well-intentioned person that nevertheless ends up with a big pole of contemptuous hypocrisy lodged in his eye socket and not have a clue. How does that happen? Well, what I want to do is I want to show you two uh, planks, two different uh, versions of the plank that can get stuck in our eyes, two planks of contempt. Here's the first one. The first one I want to call the moralistic plank. And here's how it works. Um, I want you to imagine um, that I am a very passionate person. Uh, I want you to imagine that I am very, very passionate about a very, very good moral uh, cause. And, 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 to, and I want you to play along because I want you, you need to uh, identify your favorite moral cause and just imagine that I'm very passionate about it, okay? So whatever it is, I don't, what, what gets you... What grips you? Uh, for somebody, it's going to be environmental ethics. For somebody, it's going to be religious orthodoxy. For somebody, it's going to be public health. For somebody, it's going to be uh, racial equity. What is the really important good cause that grips you? I want you to imagine that that's the thing that really I'm passionate about. And, and I know a lot about it, and I act on the knowledge that I have about that rich moral cause. And in fact, I'm, cons I'm so consistent about it in my life that, that other people who care about it admire me for my consistency. However, underneath the surface of my moral consistency, there's a problem. What's the problem? Here's the problem. Uh, th this is going to get a little weird, but if you could uh, somehow look into my heart, I don't mean my blood pump, but the center of my being, uh, you might find something very odd. Because my zeal for the moral cause that grips me is one of the key things that tells me I'm okay. Like, I know I'm okay because I'm the kind of person that pursues this particular moral cause and pursues it with consistency and passion and in a comprehensive way, and that's how I know I'm okay. Pat on the back. And not only does that, does my zeal for the moral cause tell me I'm okay, it also tells me that the world might be okay. 
In other words, it's the animating center of my hope. Now, because that's the case, if whenever anyone pushes against my cause, uh, it gets very personal very quickly. Why? Well, because if somebody disagrees with my view, or even worse, if somebody does something that actively undermines or opposes my view, it, it triggers something in me. It triggers a defensiveness. It's not just that I come back with a critique. There's nothing wrong with that. But what happens is, because it's triggering the locus of my hope, uh, if I'm not very careful, that critique will turn into resentment. And if I am not very careful, that resentment will turn into contempt for the other person. And before long, I can find myself holding another person whom I consider to be my opponent. I can hold them in contempt, judging them and condemning them, not just for their views, but for who they are. And the whole time I'm doing that, I'm convinced that this is just what it feels like to be passionate and consistent. With another pat on my back. And before long, I'm feeling arrogant and I'm feeling superior and I'm trying to fish a, a speck out of somebody else's eye. All the while, I have a giant plank, a pole lodged in my eye socket and I don't have a clue. Now, um, can you see how the uh, moralistic plank can work? And can you see how the moralistic plank can blind me? Because my uh, good zeal for the good cause can end up fueling contempt for others. It's a strange thing. And Jesus warns that it bears terrible danger. Look at verse 37 again. He says, judge not. He's refer referring to a contemptuous judgment. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Now, do you see the sting in the tail? Do you see what it implies? Do you see the warning? The warning is that if I harbor a judgmental spirit, and if I harbor a condemning spirit, and if I fail to remove the planking of contempt from my eye, then I must expect that God will hold me accountable. And one of the themes of Advent is that one of the ways in which God intervenes is that God intervenes to judge the world. We just said we expect Jesus to judge the living and the dead. And God, all from one end of the Bible to the other end of the Bible, does not tolerate hypocritical contempt. And the thing that frightens me is that very often I'm the last one to know when that plank is lodged in my eye. Does that make you nervous? But then remember that I mentioned two planks. So the first plank is the moralistic plank, but then there's another plank. And at first it seems like the opposite, except it ends up working very similarly. And here's how this second plank works. I'm going to call it, for lack of a better term, the authenticity plank. And you need to imagine it goes something like this. Imagine I say, listen, I see how the moralistic plank works. And I've been on the receiving end of it a few times. And 
And I can see how, especially religious people, can end up being terribly contemptuous and judgmental. And that's why I take a different path. Imagine I say something like this. Um, my path is more authentic. Uh, because what I do, imagine, I say, uh, what I do is I look within myself and I find out who I really am. And I go on that journey comprehensively. And when I find out who I really am, I live in conformity to who, what I find there, to the truth I find within myself. And you know what? You can't judge me because I'm living my own truth. Nor can I judge you because you're living your truth, I hope. And in doing that, I, I may well quote verse 37, judge not. Jesus, even Jesus knew that that was the case, right? Now, in fairness, I'm caricaturing a bit but you can recognize it, yes? And I call this the authenticity plank. And it sounds good. What's the problem? Well, remember how with the first plank, um, the moralistic plank, in that uh, plank, my zeal for the moral cause is the thing that tells me I'm okay. And that makes me very defensive. If anybody touches that. Well, something similar can happen here with the authenticity plank. Only with the authenticity plank, I know I'm okay because I found something affirmable in me. And I know I'm okay when I am affirming me and very often when other people are affirming me. But that approach also makes me terribly fragile because if somebody doesn't affirm me, it can very quickly end up triggering that similar kind of resentment, that response of resentment. And that response of resentment can turn into contempt just like the moralistic plank can. How dare they not affirm me? I hate self-righteous people. And I know better. Okay, can you see how it works? I can hold people in judgmental contempt all the while thinking that I'm doing exactly the thing that avoids it. There's the moralistic plank, there's the authenticity plank, and uh, verse 39, they can be the blind leading the blind. And this is why we need Advent. Because Christianity is not just about humans behaving rightly and that'll solve all our problems. That'll lead us into the moralistic plank. But nor is Christianity about looking within myself, finding something affirmable in me. That'll lead me uh, to the authenticity plank and both will end up, I'll be contemptuous. Christianity is a different story. Christianity is about God and how God advents towards us. God arrives on the scene to provide a mercy that kills the contempt. Let me show you. Go back to the reading. Okay, in this reading, the source of mercy is God himself. Verse 36, do you see that? Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Do you know what the mercy of God looks like? We'll keep reading those verses and notice the future tense verbs. Yes, that's what I said. Look at there. You will not be judged. When the mercy of God lands on your life, you will not be condemned. When the mercy of God lands on your life, you will be forgiven. 
But then Jesus gives us another image of, G of God's mercy. Look at verse 38, and you got to enter the imagery here. Um, Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. Or with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Okay, um, you got to go with the imagery here. This is an agrarian society, and in an agrarian society, grain is life. If you got grain, you got life. And the image here is that God is a little bit like a grain merchant. And God is measuring out grain to you. And you, you, you're holding a jar, and the jar is filling up with grain. And there's a little mark on your jar. It's about halfway up, and that's the mark that you think you paid for. But the grain, as the grain is filling up your jar and it's getting heavier, it gets to that mark and you expect the grain to stop, but it doesn't stop. The merchant keeps filling the grain and you say, wait a minute, you're going past what I paid for and I can't afford anymore. And the merchant just ignores you and keeps pouring grain in and it gets to the top and then the grain, the merchant stops and he grabs the, the uh, jar from you and he starts shaking it. He starts, you ever shake, shaking like rice down in it? You know what I mean? How it gets smaller? And um, does it get small? You know what I mean. And, and it shakes down, and then he comes back, and he starts pouring more grain into the jar. And then it gets to the top, and he just keeps going, and it starts spilling out everywhere. And so you put down that jar, and you grab a different one, and it starts filling up. And it does that again and again and again until you're looking no longer at the grain, but you're looking at the merchant, and you're overcome with the generosity of mercy. See, what I'm asking, Emmanuel, is what is it that comes to your mind when you think about God? You will never grasp the mercy of God until you see that God's mercy and God's generosity is bigger than what you can hold, handle, desire, or imagine. And God showed his mercy when God gave, in a way, his own life. What is very mo most important, he gave his son. God advented and intervened and arrived in this world when Jesus came among us. And Jesus is God's mercy that's bigger than what we can hold or imagine or desire. And when Jesus intervenes and arrives in your life, he always replaces the contempt of our soul with a culture of mercy. And in fact, Jesus is so consistent with replacing contempt with mercy that when uh, mercy is missing in my life or yours, it's an indication that the mercy of Jesus hasn't yet shown up or hasn't shown up in that particular area of your life. How does Jesus build, create the culture of mercy? Well, think back to those two planks, the moralistic plank, the authenticity plank. Both lead to contempt. And therefore, both deserve God's judgment and God's mercy. But now what you need to do is you need to imagine Jesus walking up. And walking up to people with those planks sticking out of their eyes. And you've got to imagine Jesus tenderly and compassionately and gently removing the planks from both their eyes. And then out of those two planks, building a cross. And then you've got to imagine Jesus in great love and compassion laying himself down across that cross and being lifted high and dying on that cross of contempt. And as you watch Jesus die on the cross of contempt, you have to see that the cross of contempt becomes the cross of mercy. 
Because on the cross, Jesus took the judgment and the condemnation that we have doled out and that we deserve. And Jesus purchased the forgiveness that we could never deserve. And you ask, what difference does a story like that make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. Because when you see that the cross of Christ is built out of the plank removed from your eye, and when you see that God's offer of mercy is beyond your capacity to desire, it will change the thing that makes your life okay. What? Yeah. Remember the, the moralistic plank and the, and the authenticity plank? I know I'm okay because of the zeal for my moral cause, or I know I'm okay because I found something affirmable in me. Well, when you belong to the merciful Father, my moral zeal no longer tells me I'm okay, and I no longer demand affirmation for something affirmable in me. Rather, I know I'm okay because I've become the object of mercy I don't deserve, and a mercy that is infinite in its extent. And that is a mercy that's stable. And that is a foundation that is robust and permanent and eternal, and nothing can overcome it. And therefore, because the mercy of Jesus has now become the thing that tells me I'm okay, I don't need to be as defensive as I used to be. Instead, Jesus' mercy creates a new humility and a new generosity and a new eagerness to serve. It creates a new humility because when the mercy of Jesus lands on your life, it'll begin to soften your critical spirit. Now, let me be careful. You will still see the evils of the world around you. But not only will you see the evils out there, when you see the evils out there, you'll have a reflex to look in here. Verse 42, you'll be quick to check the plank that might be in your own eye. And you'll remove that plank and surrender it to Jesus in confession and repentance. And that's humility. Humility is the first glimpse of the culture of mercy because you got to receive mercy before you can extend it. Humility. But then mercy moves us from humility into generosity because when the mercy of God floods your life, it doesn't stop with what's enough. The mercy of God doesn't stop with what's enough. It overflows. It's bigger than what we need and what we can hold, and it begins to flow out towards other people. So that people who used to be your opponents, instead of becoming objects of contempt, they become people to be loved. And you may not agree with them. In fact, you may see their error more clearly, but it'll provoke compassion and generosity and love rather than resentment and contempt. But the mercy of God goes further on. Not only does it humble us and, and move us in generosity, it also equips us to serve. Verse 42, when you take the plank out of your own eye, that's when you can see clearly to actually be helpful. And this is really important, friends. When Jesus says, do not judge, he does not mean that we never challenge each other, right? Jesus is the guy that called us hypocrites in this passage. Don't forget it, right? It doesn't mean we don't call each other to repent. God has a moral standard. God calls us to obedience. And God wants us to help each other adjust our lives and repent. 
However, you and I are only ever trustworthy to rebuke when you and I have first been saturated with mercy. But when you're saturated with mercy, that's when we can serve the other person well, helping them to see what it is that needs to change, not by condemning them or shaming them, but by sharing the mercy that you yourself have received. So can you see the culture of mercy? It's not something we can generate or drum up or try real hard about. It's something that we have to receive. It's something that must advent towards us, and that's what God is coming to do in you. Will you consent? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.